Hello, and welcome to another episode of Humans of Magic. This week, my guest is Michelle Rapp. Michelle is an artist, ceramicist, and dungeon manager for Loading Ready Run. We have a wonderful conversation about parenthood, lore, being of orthos, safe spaces for communities like magic. And also we get into some of Michelle's background experiences growing up as a Vietnamese American. The whole nine yards, the whole gamut of conversation is here. Please enjoy this conversation with Michelle Rapp. And a quick word about the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of magic. If you would like to get early access to episodes, Q&A, exclusive Q&A with me, get a little bit of extra content, access to the Discord community, then please consider joining the Humans of Magic Patreon. It's also the best way to support this project, which I do on a part-time basis. It's a labor of love, and every bit of support that you can provide goes a long way. So thank you for listening, as always, and let's get to the episode. What are some of the most life-changing things you've that you've acquired that have just literally changed your life like a pillow or other things oh gosh okay so pillow um this might be a little odd but a good bra there's nothing like a bra that if you are a person who wears a bra i cannot recommend getting fitted um and also just choose get, getting fitted is so important because so many people um have subscribed to like the whole victoria's secret model idea where or whatever people hear about in songs like double d's and blah 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 and <laughs> on the dance floor and so on and so forth but uh, actually you know bodies are very complex and human bodies in particular so um finding someone who knows how different sizes work how different brands have different sizes like even if you get a, a, a shirt from like one brand like gildan for example and it's like a medium it's not going to fit the same way as a medium shirt from hanes mm. similarly with bras and i think yeah just having a good bra is is just so nice because everything just hangs nicely and you feel supported and you know a little more confident i i feel like having um that in my life has been great Do you have to go to a specialty store for that it um, kind of like going to a tailor to get not quite as specific tailors can be very intimidating um but there are specialty stores that um do custom uh, like do custom fittings in terms of just measuring you and then being able to recommend something it's it's more like going to like a florist i think that's maybe a better analogy where going to like, a florist all right yeah going to a florist where like um, you come in and you're like i need this this and this like i have this budget you know and they they give some details you give them some details they measure you and then they say oh well you know your body is like this and this is how get based off of what i'm seeing here the way um, everything is laid out i recommend this brand and this size mm -hmm. try it on um, yeah, so I, I do think that it is great if you are a bra wearing person to mm -hmm. get a good bra and doubly so if you need an exercise bra, because oh, yeah. uh, not all of them are built equally. Um, mm. yeah. All right. Boots what about as a mother? Like, are there, are there things as a, as a mother that are just become indispensable as like, <sighs> not mother, but just parents in general, just right? Parent. Um, Every baby is different. 
Every yeah. baby is different. Um, so I, these are the things that have helped my baby. <laughs> um, might not help your baby. It can't. Yeah. Cause babies like human, like babies are humans and we're all, they're all different and they have different needs. Two things. One is the Inglesina clamp on high chair. Um, so many high chairs take up a really big footprint. And if you are living in a space like an apartment or you're kitchen's just smaller or, or whatever um having a high chair that literally just clamps on to the table is so amazing it's just it's great you can put a mat underneath it to catch any crumbs or get your dog it, it's one of those just space saving uh, space saving um gadgets that i think is really revolutionary and i really hope that more people who need them like high chairs just get them because they're great also the straps are like very intuitive so mm. when you're wrestling like a tiny human into this thing you can just grab it and buckle on him and it's great you're good to go um a lot of high chairs will sometimes get a little extra with the straps and next thing you know it's like it's like i don't know it's like one of those an like final fantasy situations where there's just so many belts and you're just like there's too many belts for my baby she, my baby isn't Sephiroth why does she need so many belts so there's there's that I think that's great the other thing I would recommend mm. is the tush which is essentially a belt with a shelf on it it's um mm. you buckle it on and it's got like a little shelf and you just sort of plop your your baby to sit on it or stand um and it's great, especially for my husband, because he doesn't have hips. So he can, mm. it's basically a, a buckle on hip belt and you can mm -hmm. just pop it on and it's got utility pockets and all that. So you can carry around a bottle or um, burp cloths or whatever else you, you need to, uh, you know, as you, as you take your baby on the go. And uh, yeah, there's, um, I think it goes up to 45 pounds which is about uh, the size of the average three-year-old. So you get quite a bit of use yeah, for your money. it's pretty money. hefty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that is the other thing about um, these two products I'm recommending. They are good for several years. So it's worth the investment. And they are sturdy enough that you can actually pass them on to other parents. Um, so it's a good, it's a good investment. Babies are expensive. Mm -hmm. Humans are expensive. You want to be sure that when you make the... Um, when you make the call that you find something that will actually be worth um, the, the, that money that you work so hard for. So, oh, it's, yeah. uh, and as you know, you want to use that money for other things like a five, two, nine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm jumping, I'm going to jump right into a big That's question cool. here, but yeah, you know how, when, when we grow up, like we think about our, our parents and how they, raised us and you know it, it, it's it's a thing that it's in our head for a lot of our our lives now that you're a parent yourself like have you have you gone back and thought about you know what they did versus what you're doing now like is that something that ever crosses your mind uh yes quite a lot um my parents immigrated here in 75 um i was born in 87 and my um, they didn't have the best marriage, to be quite blunt. It was um, trigger warning for other people. It was abusive um, in pretty much every way. So my mother also didn't really have much of a support network um, when she was 
when she had me as a baby. Um, she did have my grandmother for a while, but then my parents moved elsewhere and my mother neither had uh, a support network, a village, nor did she have a great command of English in order to create better connections. And so it was really hard for her um, to try to find people to watch me. Um, luckily, I was a very introverted kid, or at least very content to just sit down with a literal pile of books and just read for hours and then use the bathroom and get a snack and then go back and read. Mm. So I didn't have to, um, I didn't really need too much in, in the ways, in the way of like attention. So there would be times where she would actually just bring me to work and like stick me in a spare cubicle and just tell me to be really quiet. Mm. And I would just read. And you were or... relatively self-sufficient or on yeah. your own in that in that, yeah, that and, in that sense. Yeah. And it's it's also just a you know a, a situation where you, I kind of had to be um, because what was the other choice I had really? Um, my mom mm. wasn't necessarily going to be there because her attention was divided. My father was constantly traveling, so I found myself um, parenting myself quite a bit. In contrast to my kid, like that's not something I, I mean, there are definitely things that I've learned from being an, from being an independent and self-sufficient child for the most part, um, parenting myself that I think were beneficial for me in terms of my good, my better qualities as an adult. However, I want my kid to be able to have a support network. I would love for her to be able to explore things and, and feel free to explore other things because she knows that she can always come back to us if she needs help. And, and I think that is so important um, when you're raising anyone. I think every human thrives on security and stability. Um, I think it's important for everyone, and that's kind of going into the safe spaces idea, but it, it, I think especially when you're creating um, a, a solid foundation, a parent, a family foundation at home, uh, making sure that the last thing they have to worry about is, are they going to get, you know, is, is being afraid at home. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's not something I want my kid to, to ever feel like constantly. That's just not healthy for anyone. So that was so, your, that yeah. was you growing up. You felt afraid at home. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was a really rough childhood. Like I, um, like my parents weren't great with each other and they weren't great with me. And so I spent a lot of my time kind of caught in this uh, odd tangle of like intersectional trauma and also like intergenerational trauma where we have, you know, two people who escaped war and very likely would have been killed if they'd stayed. And that leaves a mark on you. Um, regardless of where, where, wherever you're from, from Vietnam, from Palestine, from Israel, from like um, Cuba, etc. Like people flee here because they are afraid. And that kind of fear and insecurity just leaves a really big mark on you. And if you don't seek out treatment for it, if you don't figure out a way to heal from that wound, it's going to consume you, I feel. And, and like, take over your life and kind of bleed into everything else into how you relate to other people. So for me, understanding being like raised in that environment was always a challenge because I was born here. Um, and I didn't have that same experience. 
I had only ever been told about that experience, but I was also engaging with the effects of that experience um, in a way that was really negative, in a way that was, um, how do I put it? Uh, just, it, it really soured, I think, my understanding of how, where I fit in the world, if that makes sense. Because I think uh, as you're also um, East Asian, like th these communities tend to be very insular, especially when you're an immigrant community. So having an us versus them kind of mindset, even when you're in an ostensibly multicultural space like the United States, um, really took over a lot of things. And so that coupled with like a lot of East Asian Confucian like stuff and like mm -hmm. uh, religious things, like there was a lot of pressure to not betray or let down your family. And so when I ended up becoming more independent, I moved out, went to college, had the freedom um, financially and likewise to pursue, I guess, my own identity. Um, I found myself blossoming. But even then, there was always that fear, that leftover fear um, of, when I, of what I'd grown up with. So There's a fear really, and maybe even a guilt, yeah. right? Maybe yeah, and some... a lot of guilt as well, because it's like, oh, well, my family went through so much in order to get here. They went through so much in order to put me through these schools, make sure I had dinner, food on the table, books to read, you know, um, piano lessons, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And being able to reconcile that with, well, but they also behaved like this, and that was great. That's not right. okay. Right. So, yeah, that's uh, very much what I'm that's a big lesson that I'm taking forward in terms of how I'm approaching parenting. Um, every kid's going to be different. Every parent's going to be different. But for me, I just want to make sure that my kid doesn't feel fear when they open the yeah. door to come home. Just feels happy or just yeah, feels just content. Feels happy, relief. Safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I want them to be comfortable to come in and just kick their shoes off and track mud up the stairs and i'm like ah oh, i have to <laughs> you gotta help me clean that up later <laughs> it's like, right, fine right. you know well you have to get mad at that sometimes right because there are still yeah. boundaries to what they what they can do or exactly. what any human can do mm -hmm. but i want them to be unafraid to to push a little bit you know, right to be right. able to because every person when they grow they want to push their boundaries they want to test like who they are in the world and where they sit in the hierarchy of things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I know, want that. I, I know it's hard. Like I, I don't have exactly the same background you did, but you know, I, I was a little bit different on my end. I mean, I was born in Taiwan. My parents grew up there and they immigrated us to Canada. And, um, the relationship that they had was also very tough. They separated actually later on when I was a, a teenager, um, it, which in hindsight was, definitely the right thing to do. I think they stayed together because of my brother and I, and I just think looking back on it, like that was kind of a mistake. They wanted to keep the nuclear family around longer, but I definitely felt, you know, as you said, maybe like caught in the middle of that tension. And, uh, you know, it, it was, yeah, I guess, I guess. And, and the thing I just want to relate is just when, when you're in a new country or in a new part of the world, you only have each other or you're part of such a small group and so for your parents i have to assume that they only had each other so despite what was going on it didn't feel like there was another lifeline like there wasn't another thing that they could grab onto they just didn't have mm -hmm. like 
it did it felt like they were all in right it's just, just there's no there's no alternative so that just makes it hard because i think a lot of times even looking at my life today like i try to eliminate things in my life that i don't want but i i can if i put myself in their shoes like they're going through so much stuff that they just couldn't change and it was just and there's also perhaps the guilt associated with like okay we were the ones who actually decided to come here so now we just have to put up with each other and put up with life and that's just the way it has to be for the rest of my life and that's um thankfully it didn't end up being that way for them because i i think they're both happy happier now in their own in their own way but i it's yeah i don't know it's just 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 a lot going through going going on for them at the time so yeah no, my parents also eventually separated uh, when I was in college, and I was really happy that they did, too. I, I felt that it was a... At the end of the day, I think having two healthy, healthier, happier people raising you is... I'm sorry, your cat is, like, being adorable behind you. Yeah, and, oh, uh, yeah he, he's always <laughs> trying to get attention, and oftentimes he's perched back there, and uh, now he's fine. He's just... He's just yeah, there's he's been just, times where I've been recording and he just jumps on onto the mic here and it's so just, amazing. yeah. I just yeah, saw yeah, yeah. like, I'm going to get it. I'm like, oh, I don't know what you're going to get, but you're going to fall. <laughs> it's funny too, because I don't see any of it and then the guest <laughs> sees it. And sometimes I, I'm editing the episode and I'm just, I, I had no idea that he was doing all these crazy things in the background. But, yeah. It's, yeah, no, gotta love our cats, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. They're just so great. Um. But yeah, just uh, deciding to, I mean, it's, you know, when you're on an airplane, uh, they tell you to put your own mask on before you put someone else's when the oxygen masks come down. And that is a really big analogy that we have to take into our, our mental health. Uh, we have to be able to take care of ourselves before we can take care of other people. Um, and I think in these situations when people come here and there's so much change that they grasp onto any stability they can, even if it's unhealthy, even if it's toxic, because change is terrifying. They've been through it before and it's scary. So that sunk cost fallacy also kind of mm -hmm. comes in there where it's like, well, I've spent, you know, this many years with this person. I can take it. Like, it's mm -hmm. fine. There isn't, it's not like it's going to get any better. Right. I know what it's like out there and it'll just be worse. Yeah. So, um, I, definitely hope that um we can and that's one of the reasons you know why i went through therapy for so long um you know my husband and i've been through therapy for quite a while too and therapy isn't just like marriage therapy isn't just for couples that are falling apart it's also great for situations where you're about to anticipate a really big change like we went through this before we decided to start a family because we wanted mm -hmm. to make sure we were on the same page so understanding that like, ourselves um by having those really tough conversations helps us to better understand what work we need to put in in order to make ourselves strong enough and more capable enough so that we can take care of a new person for sure sounds yeah. like the two of you did the right uh laid the right foundation I mean, we'll uh, see. I don't know. <laughs> wood, right? like, it's working so far. Knock on wood, right? Uh, it's only been nine months. Don't. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just the nature of things, too, is, is that we often have this view of others that is, uh, I'll be honest, like I've talked to you for maybe uh, 
I don't know, I guess, including before recording, maybe half an hour, and I'm already <laughs> making judgments about like, your life is great. And who, who knows, right? Anything could change tomorrow. I'm not trying to, I'm not throwing shade at you. But it's like, no, 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 it's no, just, no. We don't, I... there's so much about other people that we don't know that we're just projecting ourselves on the internet. Oh and gosh. it's like, who knows? Yeah. And there's nothing more chaotic than a baby. I'm gonna let everyone know just, yeah, you can prepare as much as you want. But it will still throw you for a curve. And that's why I'm like, I don't know. I'm hope I, I logically, given everything right. I've experienced, I think this is the right path. Yeah. But check in with me in about 18 years and yeah. I'll let you know. I think it's I, overall good though, right? Because it gives you some sort of humility, I suppose, because you just know that you're not going to be perfect and you'll make some mistakes or missteps along the way, right? Yeah, I think giving yourself the grace, especially anything that happens in every endeavor, right? Um, one of my past um, careers was, and I was a managing events. I did, um, I've, I've organized conferences and big like recruitment days at Google and things like that. The thing that, and I also organized my own wedding, I planned it and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And honestly, not as hard as putting together like a big conference, really. <laughs> Once you get the big conferences conference are, down. are tough. Yeah. A lot cheaper, too, than a 575 quarter, three quarter million dollars. I think we put into that one. Um, but anywho, um, one thing that you always learn is that something's going to go wrong, no matter how well you plan, no matter who you've got lined up, something is going to happen. And the question is, and that I think determines how good of an event planner you are, is what you do in order to fix it. How do you um, respond to it, right? Yeah, exactly. How do you respond to it? What are you going to be able, what is, what resources do you have at hand to make this right? Depending on what happened, you know, did an elevator break down? Um, a, a truck that was meant to deliver the beer got stuck on a hill. <laughs> like you mm -hmm. just what do you do um so you, there's a lot of problem solving that happens within that time within that within that um profession so having yeah taking that into parenting kind of helps a little bit because you're like mm. i have a rough idea of what i want but i don't know mm -hmm. we'll see what happens that's a tough field i mean just event management it's resource management time management mm -hmm. things that can wrong can go wrong will go wrong yeah and yeah. How, how long did you do that for was I that for a was couple that... years yeah that was okay. like the very beginning of my career in silicon valley um i i was doing a lot of like recruiting and also like marketing and event management so i also ended up especially when you're on the ground for an event you end up being pulled into roles that you have no idea that you would be doing. Like I bounced my own conference after party. It was wild. I mm. <laughs> had to yell at people, like mm -hmm. get very, I, I was actually apparently quite scary. Um, but cause you know, you just, you please don't break state law like during this event maybe. Um, so there was uh, quite a bit of that, but I think it's just made the flexibility. That was the biggest, thing I, I learned from that experience was balancing planning with flexibility and just understanding that stuff will go wrong and hopefully you've got everything in mind and you have things you can pull upon to try to make it right but there's no way you're gonna know how things are gonna shake out until it happens was there something that made you move away from that type of career um so 
what happened was I, um, so I was event managing for a couple of years and then I ended up um, getting laid off because that company did not understand how to business good, which is a common refrain in Silicon Valley. <laughs> Sometimes uh, uh, companies or people get a lot of money and they don't often use it in the best ways, right? Yes. Insert we work here. Um, mm. <laughs> but I was actually, I, I actually was part of a few startups that had we work offices. It was pretty interesting. But mm. um, I ended up getting into uh, I guess in the in the in that time when I was working at Google and these um, this company, I discovered that I had a real passion for um, trying for I guess I, corporate organization and and just creating efficient systems that helped everyone get their work done in a healthy and happy way. And so understanding the flow of management, understanding where the buck stopped and who was responsible for what became um, very important to me, especially as I was event managing, like understanding, okay, if I needed to need like to let people know they only have certain amounts of tickets or I need to get a budget um, adjustment like accepted or or whatnot i i would need to know who to go to for that and based on my frustration with this company i was like you know i i would i could bet i could probably figure this out so yeah. i ended up joining several startups um mostly as the person who did recruiting hr office management general counseling <laughs> just um sometimes janitorial duties just like doing all of that um, in order to help kind of build a really great foundation for uh, the very start of a startup. I was, I found myself being, getting really good at um, like creating policies and being really scrappy, finding a good bargain, finding um, good office equipment for a really cheap price, things like that, um, managing to haggle deals and so on and so forth. To Just being resourceful, yeah. it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. So just making sure that we had what we needed in order to keep the office going in order to keep the company moving um, but also helping to shape the structure of the company as it grew so getting it on like the very very ground floor was always very appealing for me um and i was i was in that for several years um fortunately startups being what they are some that went bust some of them uh had really awkward uh and illegal things happen and <laughs> Yeah, uh, and there's one that I can't really talk about because I involved lawyers. So there's that. And after all of this, I realized I'm just so tired of trying to clean up after man children. I'm actually quite happy to clean up after my child because she has a very good excuse for making the message. Sure, she does. literal children. That's literal one actual thing. child. Mm -hmm. um, man children. <laughs> It, would you With say like, it's mostly men, like kind of men in leadership positions yeah. doing things badly or? Um, I would say so. I mean, unfortunately, and I think if you, I mean, if you, if you look into like um, the history and uh, the history of like companies that recently went bust and got a lot of press for that, like Theranos or we work or the most recent crypto nonsense with SBF and FTX, there has been and continues to be a very bro culture 
within Silicon Valley. It's the classic tech bro, mm -hmm. uh, the one who wants to hack their DNA or hack their bio stuff in order to like right there's somebody now who's trying to uh solve aging i, I guess there's yeah. multiple people trying to solve aging and putting you know spending what two million dollars a year on his body and all that stuff exactly has a youtube there's, channel and yeah yeah there's like a lot and there's always fads right for a little while i remember there was the internet of things where like everything was bluetooth including right. juicero that was the juicero juicero saga. yes yeah, yeah. Um, and then now is AI and we, I think are still figuring out how that's going to shake out. Right. Because, mm -hmm. um, we have as a, as an industry, Silicon Valley has been very interested in machine learning for a very, very long time. Um, and now we're seeing the first big leap into interacting with a significant portion of human beings and understanding the ethics of that and how to integrate it in a way that is a benefit for humans, I think is still being hashed out and certainly mm -hmm. being tangled up by the demands of a late stage capitalist society. So there is that aspect as well. As you can tell, like, even though I'm out of like Silicon Valley and tech, I still have a lot of interest. Oh, it's part in of you. Yeah, yeah. 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 So like learning, oh, that's what Anderson, Hor Anderson Horowitz is. That's This is their new seed crop of like startups so on and so forth like who got funding from where you know are people getting money from the saudis again are they getting from china which are the big chinese vc firms right. softbank is saudi funded as i yeah saudi as i remember yes yes yeah. and uh, they, they bankroll we work and a, a bunch of companies right oh yeah yeah oh gosh i'm yeah, in the scene yeah. as well i mean not i mean i guess yeah i am i mean i'm in tech so i work for a tech company <laughs> i'm a product manager uh, I work for oh, you. monolithic <laughs> <laughs> companies like Microsoft and uh, Amazon before uh, out of China, but it's still, it was, it was, uh, uh, I was connected. I work, one of the first uh, Silicon Valley companies I joined in China, but I went to California quite a bit was Yahoo. So that was like, oh, Yahoo yeah. was, was huge back in the day. And oh, yeah. I'm up to date on all the tech stuff too. And it's something I don't ever tweet about, but it sounds like you and I might have some commonalities. <laughs> uh, I, oh. I had my own startup unsuccessfully a few years oh. back. Uh, I work for startups as well. Actually, funny yeah. enough, there's one I work for that was in the event management space. And we used to work with event organizers. We built a product for wow. conferences. Oh, nice. Um, it would have been nice to work with you back in the day yeah. had we ever intersected. You seem, <laughs> you seem nicer now. Uh, compared to some of the folks that I worked with uh, oh, back no, then, I'm because so sorry. no, I just mean like no, I was, I was like one thing I was going to say when you were talking about the conferencing is just that I think it's important now as as I get older to have to relate to understand where people are coming from. I I feel like there's it's just such pressure cooker work, just constantly having to, as you implied, like adapt to things that or honestly just shit that hit hit the fan. It's just it's just really <laughs> hard, and I find that it's just, it's just stress. And maybe, maybe when you're doing it, you normalize the stress. I don't know what it was, but everybody deals with it differently. Yeah. It, I mean, I just, one of the reasons why I became such a big wine snob was like, I was working at, at big tech companies or in tech companies where I was at the time before inflation really hit the fan, um, making a lot of money. And I was like, 
I'm just a young, am I young? I'm like a young 20 something. I am being shat on by all of these terrible people. I'm going to buy designer crap and drink expensive wine. Might as well, right? Just, feel just, better. You, you, you earned that money. You gotta, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was like, I'm just like, God, I remember so many nights like going home drinking like a $250 bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon and just being so angry and crying mm. and watching like, a Dolly Parton like music video or something just be like Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> I mean she's great mm. that's a name <laughs> I've not heard in a while yeah she's taking me back yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. now today to this day I still joke that the taste of anger for me is like a really wonderful California Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> like just like this dark, bitter, earthy, yeah. delicious, spicy wine. <laughs> Just... yeah. yeah, yeah. But hopefully you're in a better place now. Oh, no, definitely. I was so happy to get out of that because I was like, I'm going to turn into a very expensive alcoholic if I keep going down this road, which many people do, honestly. Um, I was so much happier to get out of that and into positions that, were a lot less stressful. Also, I started playing Magic the Gathering when that took up a lot of my money. So I just... <laughs> so you started, did you... Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you begin your relationship with Magic? Was it, oh. was it in the Bay Area? Or... Yeah, it was, in a, it was at a startup. <laughs> so they were playing Magic and you yes. were just... Okay. Yes. So I joined a company that had um, a, a lot of really grand ideas, not just with I mean and that's it's one of those things where it's like the product itself is sort of eh like it, it was I think some kind of software that was all about like data management or something like that it was very or data no it was data analysis um it's been a long time it's totally defunct I don't need to go into the product but mm -hmm. um they had this very grandiose idea of like revolutionizing the framework and just foundations of corporate organization uh, to make it far more egalitarian. They uh, wanted to, to make it a holacracy, which is a, a corporate organizational structure that was, I think, championed by Zappos. Yeah, where, Zappos. I was going to say yeah, Tony Shea. That's, that's where yeah, it was popularized. Yep. Very, very popular. So they wanted to take that in and like perfect it and essentially kind of build on the next iteration of it with Zappos being sort of the alpha model. They wanted to take it to the next level. Um, it didn't work. But uh, other than that, they decided that one of the things that they could do was like share their interests. So they thought that it would, the founders thought it would be a great idea to take a lot of that hard earned VC money and buy pallets of booster boxes. <laughs> I was gonna. Have it. I was gonna say, how about just one booster box? Like, do we really need a pallet of? <laughs> I mean, it seemed like it. Like, oh god. Uh, and what was great was the uh, the people who taught me were like the LGBTQ uh, IA group at the company. All like five of us. And mm -hmm. I remember the first day I like sat down with my friend Elizabeth, and they literally were just like, "Oh yeah, let's teach you how to play Magic. Let's. I'm going to show you how to play a, a build a sealed deck." And I'm like okay sure what's that and i thought that they would just grab maybe a couple of packs but they they had packs going all the way to like mirrodin besieged and like all the way up to when i started playing which was in 2014 so all the way up to uh dragons of tarkir okay so it was quite the magic stash yeah, it was quite the magic stash with all the core sets. They had core sets at the time. And she they, they handed me like a 
pack pile and they're like just start opening and i'm like okay but do i have to get these back like no nah, these are yours now and i opened like an ugin and like a chandra and just uh-huh. built this ridiculous green red stompy deck it was mm. very very fun and we played each other like in downtime but mm. that was how i started playing magic and then um yeah just I got that's how I kind of got into lore as well because they started talking giving me an insight into like oh this is a really special three block set dragons fate reforged con uh no cons fate reforged dragons and I was really also just amazed by the fact that there was a whole set with people who looked like me on it mm. um and yeah. Tarkir being a like continental like central asian kind of like not really Central Asian, like just Continental Asia inspired set uh, was really, really cool. Um, mm-hmm. The last time I had looked at magic was back when I was dating my first boyfriend and it was all just like scantily clad ladies. Sorry. <laughs> and like, oh, game, yeah, that was uh, during a, and... was it 2000s or 90s where yeah, magic it was like 2003. Was... And I don't know, I think you showed me Animate Wall, like the art for Animate Wall, and I was like, this is silly, because it's just like this big, angry wall, like, it looks like it came out of Mario. Mm. And then there's mm. a woman literally like, ah. <laughs> So I, did, I wasn't super Art compelled. direction was wild back then. I don't <laughs> was... know if there was art direction, but it was wild. <laughs> but it was so cool, like, seeing all of these things. And then my friend told me the one thing that absolutely cemented my interest in magic, which was um, Alesha who smiles at death. And they told me there's a trans woman in this set. And I was like, what? There's a trans woman in magic? And they said, yeah, it's, it's a new thing. Like they're really trying to be a lot more inclusive. And I thought to myself, if they can have a trans Asian woman in magic, I can play magic too. There must be a place for me here at this table. So I, we would, yeah, my, my little group of, of other queer friends, we just sit around, we'd compare our intricately made bentos and mm-hmm. play magic. Mm-hmm. Nice. And, yeah. Yeah. Were you a gamer or did you play RPGs or did you do stuff before magic? Um, I played a heck of a lot of Dominion. Uh, I was a board gamer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, at the time, was really hanging out with the right board gaming crowd. Like, unfortunately, my, for example, Settlers, I'm sure you're familiar with Settlers of Catan. I it's definitely a, know of Settlers and Dominion. Dominions is OG Dominions, and amazing. Dominion is great. It's a perfect on-ramp to magic. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, Settlers, I was playing with people who would do, like, futures, for example. So uh, they would say, you would make a deal, like, um, okay, well, if you give me this wheat now the next time i get a sheep i'll give you the sheep and so there would be this running tally of like mm. oh well i owe you two sheep it, it would just get very messy yeah so, futures market for settlers yeah futures market for settlers is not great this is there's it kind of also came into play during um bonanza which is this fantastic little like bean farming game i've um, heard of it i haven't tried it but it's it's, it's a good super game cute it's a great game it's adorable um but you would it's a similar situation where you trade beans and you you plant your bean fields and you harvest them some beans are worth more than others uh so there would be like oh well if you give me two blue beans now i'll give you a red bean later and that turned a 40 minute game into literally like three hours Mm. of just haggling over negotiations yeah yeah and so i had become rather 
jaded <laughs> with normal okay. board games yeah and and was really into dominion at the time and then when magic came around i got really excited and eventually got my husband into playing as well and it's been fun it's i mean on one hand it's like yay we're a couple and we play magic together we have our strengths and our weaknesses we make a very good two-headed giant team um but on the other hand we're like oh there's so much money sitting upstairs in magic mm. cards and just over yeah. here right now yeah well yeah. how how one can justify that is always saying that you know if you wanted to you could liquidate it and you could get some of that value it's back true. right it's true i mean i mean we could probably pay for be depending on which college if they if, or even if they wanted to go to college or if they wanted we are pretty sure we can pay for at least a year of higher education for our kid depending on where they go yeah um, it's good to know you have that buffer or that yeah ability yeah. i mean hopefully we don't get flooded or <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 when things come up right as we said you know some things unexpected things can come up and we just have to respond to it or absolutely yeah so yeah, yeah. it's it's um it's been a fun thing that we've shared and I kind of segued from there into into D and D during the pandemic because you know no one was really playing Magic at our LGS because there was just D and D online or some sort of webcam thing or yeah yeah it was D and D online. I got inspired by watching Dimension Twenty, um, which is a oh, yeah yeah dropout best six dollars per month anyone will ever spend. Um, mm -hmm. But they uh, Brennley Mulligan is an amazing DM, so incredibly inspirational. He's funny, he's compassionate, he's kind. His table mm -hmm. is always funny i also really loved just the natural improv comedic aspect of it and it really pushed me into wanting to pursue something similarly um so that's kind of how i ended up um doing a lot of streams during the pandemic uh where i was learning new rpgs it's believe it or not it's a little tricky to try to find people to just gm like dm because it's it's like one of the hardest things in the game like you have to be the video game you have to like learn the rules create the world i've as heard your that the dm is, is the hardest in. role right it is and so i found myself in that position quite often so i'm like yeah sure why not i'll do, I'll do it and then yeah. i'm like knee deep in 5e just like <laughs> Yeah. Well, it fits yeah. in with yeah. kind of your, your background. Like I, maybe I'm generalizing, please correct me if I am, but yeah. just, just being very well organized or just being able to run things like events. I mean, well then running a campaign could have some similarities mm -hmm. like going deep into lore or like going, doing the research or like doing the work on some of these things, like setting the foundation and yeah. being a storyteller. I think that these are all things that I understand a, a DM needs to do, right? Oh. Uh, that's 100% correct. And like that situation as well, you never know what your players are going to do. Right. Like, what are they going to say? How are they going to respond to some event? Like what, what's yeah. the role going to be, you know? Yeah. What, what are they going to end up doing? Like I remember um, having a conversation with my players and like crafting the perfect girlfriend for one of them. And then they were like, no, nah, we're not going to go for that. I'm like, okay, <laughs> just going to go on something else. And, oh gosh, there was another game I was a player in where we became obsessed with a random scarecrow we found in a field. Okay. And his name is Harvey, and we buy him new outfits. Okay. And he's the darling and mascot of our D&D group. Um, but, yeah, it's... It's kind of, it's like a lower stakes version of like event planning, but also, you know, fun and 
yeah, it combines a lot of things that I personally find um, really pleasurable. Like I like planning. I like being able to um, entertain and engage with my friends. I love telling stories. I love stories. And and there's also, you know, some spicy things that happen sometimes. You're like, Ooh, oh, yeah. I yeah. That. And so, it's it's true what they say, yeah. right? The pandemic just made a lot of these things a lot more popular, right? I think mm -hmm. there are like streams, shows, uh, magic itself got more popular in some. Yeah formats for example commander and uh oh my gosh commander yeah. pre-pandemic and commander post-pandemic are yeah completely different beasts yeah exploded right i think there's a lot of creators who really came up during the pandemic era you know mm -hmm. yeah there's a whole new cadre of people and i like to joke as well that Commander really had a big glow up. We, I remember the days when I would go to a GP and us Commander players were constantly being shuffled from table to right. table right. because there were no assigned tables for us. So we just had to mm -hmm. steal tables from drafts. Mm -hmm. And eventually there was, I think, a GP LA. Uh, I think a bunch of us just took over the fast, like the convention food court. Mm -hmm. And that was where we could find tables. Right, right. Which makes things a little bit not to like abruptly jump but like it makes yeah. things a bit weird when now there's discussion about how like there's um command fest and you have to pay to play you have to pay to be at a table especially if you're og or just pre-pandemic you're coming from like that to now like this is the marquee event and now i have to actually pay just to play you know so that that is a very different like 180 or however you want to call it mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah it's definitely no longer casual i think it kind of fell into the same problem and the same pitfalls as D D and a bunch of rpgs kind of fell in during the pandemic where mm. i think one of the one of the common the common elements that an rpg a ttrpg and D, and uh edh have in common is that you have a group of people coming together and interacting with each other. And oftentimes there are going to be miscommunications and there's going to be um, a difference of alignment with regards to how you want your experience to be versus someone else. And unfortunately, in these situations, we aren't great about talking about those things oftentimes because we don't even, sometimes we just don't even know, like we're not familiar with that. Um, and so, I'm really glad that now both D&D &D or like TTRPGs and um, EDH have this thing now called Rule Zero or Session Zero in the case of like a TTRPG campaign where before we even start shuffling up or before we even start rolling for new characters, we sit down, we talk about what it is that we want to have out of the game. And mm -hmm. it's... An investment. A type of social contract, yeah. right? Like a exactly. Very Lockean. Very my my poli sci major. <laughs> your poli sci major? Yeah. All right. Poli sci major. <laughs> right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah. Just like or even maybe like the John Rawlsian like veil of ignorance. Like if I'm mm. like yeah, like I, I need to assume that I'm like gonna be the most vulnerable person in this arrangement. So how do I how do I communicate in order to make sure that even the least advantaged of us in the situation gets like what they need out of the arrangement. Um, so they are, so yeah, people, I'm really glad that people are, are talking about that. Like Sheldon did a ton of work, like rest in peace, Sheldon, we miss you. Sheldon Henry, um, rest in peace. Yeah. Yes. Um, 
that he and, and a lot of other people on the CAG did a lot of work and the rules committee did a lot of work to try to make this conversation more normal. And in the TTRPG world, um, session zero has taken on a very sacred, like a sacred place where mm. we can come in and have rules of engagement. Like this is what triggers me. I don't like spiders. I'm looking for something um, like Ocean's Eleven, um, so on and so forth. And then another mm. person can come in and say, like, well, I was looking for something a little bit more like Jane Austen with Pride and Prejudice. And then the DM's like, okay, how am I going to reconcile <laughs> these two yeah. different genres and not include spiders? So it, it's a it's a real, like, obligation um, to create that kind of charmed space for at least on the DM's part, to like create this charmed space where everyone can play and feel safe playing. And I, I'm hoping that with Rule Zero for EDH, um, people can come together and mutually agree to create a similar space where they can play and you know compete with each other and have fun um, without feeling really salty about it later, which can be really difficult even for like the most seasoned person. Oh, for sure. Yeah, emotions are definitely a part of it. And uh, I also want to ask, as we're talking about spaces, yeah. you know, um, I think you've always been very um, direct and you've been an advocate of, you know, having safe spaces. I would have to assume not just in magic, but just in sp spaces in general, right? So gaming or otherwise. I, I want to know kind of, you know, we've talked a bit about how you, your upbringing and how you were part of these um not entirely great startups and you know learning games with certain people certain folks like how how does how does one go from someone with your background to like having such passion that you do in this type of safe space topic and may, or maybe even just define safe space to begin with that might just help someone like me i i mean um i mean it's on the tin uh, it's, a, it's a space where you feel safe <laughs> and that I mm. think is it's a simplistic thing to say but I think that's the essence of the phrase it's just a place where you like feel safe. psychological physical safety physical type of... everything where you can feel safe to engage with others where you feel um don't feel like threatened where where you don't feel uh, basically where you can be yourself in a way that doesn't harm anyone else um, in a place of mutual respect and consideration and empathy. Like, I think that these are, um, I think that this is just a, a really important place to, to uh, this is an important space to kind of create for yourself and for other people as much as possible. Um, if only because I personally believe that it's a human right to have a safe space. You You deserve to have safety. People deserve to feel safe. People deserve to have dignity. And it's difficult to have dignity if you are in, afraid. I think um, fear drives people to do um, unwise things, can cause people to hurt other people. Um, creating a shared uh, language um, around expectations and rules of engagement, I think that is incredibly important to preserve everyone's personhood uh, within mm. these spaces. I became really passionate about this, mostly due to my own experience. But like I said, you know, in my career as well, I am a queer woman of color. Um, I am not part of the tech brotherhood, as it were. Um, I certainly 
I mean, one would say that like East Asian folks certainly have more of a leg over Asian folks definitely are more represented within the tech sphere. But that doesn't mean that we don't also run into a lot of issues of our own. And for for brown and black people, like that's certainly even more compounded, right? Um, and then you add on transness and, and all that. So just on top of one another, there's a lot of room for misunderstanding, miscommunication. So for me, um, a lot of the work I did within my companies was try to create shared values um, to establish a company mission statement that um, we would could adhere to and be our North Star uh, with regards to creating um, everything from parental leave policies to medical leave policies to what kind of health insurance we'd get to how we conduct um, performance reviews, how we conduct like exit interviews. All of that was important to me and having that like state value statement to go by um, just I felt was the, the most important thing in order to um, foster that environment and help that become scalable over time, right? Um, obviously, a company of 15 people is going to have a very different dynamic than a company of 150 people. So understanding the long-term effects of the decisions that you make at a very early stage, um, how it reverberates to larger and larger um Systems. Yeah, you have to plant the right seeds, right? Exactly. Yeah. You have to create that foundation. And so um, it, I discovered, you know, that's difficult to do that when other people don't necessarily believe in that same idea. Um, mm. And it's also difficult to do that when you also run up against the realities of having to turn a profit. Um, unfortunately, we live in a society where we value people according to what they can provide for us, um, what monetary value they can give us and as a result it is easy to dehumanize other people um because they aren't providing precisely the right thing at the right time so on and so forth it is difficult to foster compassion in um in, in a situation where people will refuse to like see you as anyone other than just a living profit machine or a value generating person yeah. like are yeah. you like they're looking at your paycheck or they can assume what your paycheck looks like and think oh yeah you know your time is not as valuable as mine so i'm mm -hmm. going to um treat you this way or say this to you or mm -hmm. make you feel uncomfortable or make you feel unsafe mm -hmm. so that was a common thing that I experienced throughout my time in Silicon Valley. It was something that I found um, in common with my other friends who were marginalized within these communities, within these companies. And eventually when I left, um, it was because I was just fed up. I was fed mm -hmm. up with uh, It's not aligned to... with your values yeah. and you're fed up, right? All exactly. of the above. Yeah, yeah, just I was just fed up and I discovered ceramics. I discovered um, different ways of creating my own spaces that uh, places where I had more of a con more control over um, establishing that kind of foundation. Mm -hmm. And that led to my interest in creating spaces like that within gaming, within Magic the Gathering. That also led you know to my interest in TTRPGs. Um, 
you know, even when I, and it's also just a hospitality thing. I grew up in Texas and it's just like, you know, we want people to come over. You want them to have a nice time, get some tea, you know, Get chat. some tea, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's always been a really important thing for me, um, creating uh, an environment where people feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, then that way you get to know each other better. You can become friends and mm -hmm. laugh and have fun and share things. Yeah. These are all things that are, we should all aspire to cultivate, right? And I guess what I'm wondering is, because you're, you've been in the magic and gaming space for quite some time. What are some, I, sorry, I don't mean anything just like, negative by oh. that, you know, it's no, like, no, 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 it's just no, a no, setup. Right? I'm just but, like, oh, you're right. Oh God, yeah. he's so old. <laughs> the realization. But um, <laughs> if we look at specific communities, let's just say magic or even commander, like what are some things that become obstacles to cultivating safe spaces? Like, is it the mindset of the players? Is it their backgrounds? Is it some sort of lack of empathy like what exactly is happening in your estimation um that's a very difficult question to answer if only because it's hard to generalize sure yeah it's difficult to generalize i think it's a little bit like asking like so iran <laughs> how's that going on <laughs> what like, are your thoughts on what? Uh, earth what are your you know <laughs> just... what, what are your thoughts on a uh, colonization of outer space or something yeah, yeah just uh like uh, okay <laughs> like, yeah no um not that it's not that it's um a, it's not a dumb question it's just it's a question that i think requires a little bit of thought on my part um with regards to what's going on i guess as far as like the discussion within edh or within cdh i think that it comes down to um it comes down to a lot of miscommunication it also comes down to a lot of what people are bringing to the table with regards to their own baggage and trauma um i and also i think that it is down to, and I think this is part of the miscommunication thing, part of just social media being the the venue that it is, right? Uh, particularly on places like what was known as Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. These are spaces where you are constrained um, very much uh, in terms of how many words you can get out, uh, in terms of how long anyone's going to be able to sit down and listen to you, your video, etc. Um, so there's a lot of pitfalls in terms of communication there. Um, there isn't really a shared language, I think, that people have in these spaces. Um, in, like Communication is just so important in, in terms of being able to articulate your intentions and articulate like what you want, what you need. We are not very well equipped to do that, even face to face, even over a medium like this, where I can see you, you can see me, and we're chatting. Um, and it's a very interactive experience. When we add in the inability to ask questions, when we in add the inability to um, use more than 280 characters or um, have more than 40 minutes, uh, 40 seconds, 30 seconds in order to say what you need to say um the majority of people aren't gifted in that way <laughs> like maybe someone like 
E. Cummings or maybe one of the great writers <laughs> of the past, like who are yeah. great and pithy and like know precisely the words to say are would be wonderful at communicating their yeah. their needs and wants and intentions. What if Mark Twain had a Twitter account? That's you know, if Mark Twain one... had a Twitter account, it'd be like so amazing. I would love yeah, it all, he'd also get into a Someone lot of Someone should do parodies of that. I'm not sure if people have. That would be interesting. <laughs> um, I'm sure that Musk would hate it, though. He hates parody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I looked at Instagram, though, and I think an Instagram account for Mark Twain would be rad. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, I just think that the fact that we are hindered by all of these obstacles sure. creates massive misunderstandings. Just, just, it doesn't, there's no incentives in, on these platforms to... Um, you're not rewarded for being articulate. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, you're not rewarded for being articulate because the algorithm, um, it, it rewards hot takes. It rewards conflict. Mm. It rewards um, controversy. So having big takes like mm. um, this card is bad or why we should all ban cyclonic rift and, and sure. all that stuff very it, definitive it's... statements yeah precisely um i think that it is too easy for people who um so, so you think people are very much that. influenced by what yeah. they what they read or interact with on these platforms and are you saying that they bring it to the face-to-face because -face? I, if i take um some of what you said about your your past career like let's just say that i was at a mm -hmm. startup right and Maybe at that time there wasn't even Twitter or a lot of the communication was happening face to face. And you said it still leads to misunderstandings. Like, is that like if we take is it is it the fact that social platforms create these preconceptions in our mind when we sit down a, a magic table that then things happen because we bring that into it? Or is it I just inherently yeah. like the interactions themselves in IRL? It's both. Right. I think that this is something we have as humans had to deal with since i guess the beginnings of like storytelling or or whatnot like um to get real real nerdy for just a second um let's take shakespeare and julius caesar the play now brutus has the whole thing where he goes before mark antony has this entire thing about like well he was a tyrant. He would not like Julius Caesar was a dictator. He would he was not going to let the Republic come back for Rome um, and that sort of thing. Like he he creates this persona right for for Julius Caesar and he brings that to the table. Of course, he has his own biases. He has his own arguments. And this is and given that the crowd doesn't really know Julius Caesar, like they're going to be like, OK, um, yeah, he was a complete like. He was a complete asshat. He <laughs> he was gonna get rid of the a very Senate. Shakespearean he was like, language. Yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he creates some really fantastic fart jokes. So, mm. but you know, Mark Antony then goes up and he's like, "Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Like, I don't come here to praise Caesar, but to like give you the actual tea about like how I knew Caesar, and he was actually like. A real good guy. He may have done some stuff, but he always had Rome in his heart. And he was a true statesman, a true Roman, etc. And then the entire crowd goes wild. And I think that's sort of what happens, right? Like you come to the table and you have these ideas of who these people are. None of these people in the crowd actually hung out with Julius Caesar, right? They're just 
peasants or or even if they're patricians like they probably maybe saw this guy on the other side of the coliseum like or maybe on the face of a coin like, right it's, he's just he's a not... figure that's off in the distance sure exactly and that's how we see each other when we're up on twitter when we're on facebook or instagram we just have this idea of who the other person is we don't see them as a person so when we see them across the table they already carry a lot with them right and that's gonna be that's gonna obviously affect how we talk to each other like you and i we haven't really spoken before but clearly you've done some research on me i've done some research on you and we came to this conversation with a few assumptions and so um like those assumptions can help or hinder conversations they can help or hinder communication uh depending on what you believe and what is important to you so uh, even having the a chance to like reflect upon your own biases and whatnot when you come to a conversation um that i think will help a lot of people not just in magic but just in general <laughs> like sure absolutely better understand like what dynamics are at play when you're interacting with another human being yeah i'm gonna ask you a question that i don't really know the answer to and sure. the, i guess that's why i'm asking yeah. is is there a way for two people with opposing beliefs to actually coexist in a safe space? Does that make it unsafe because the two people are like, let's just say that I'm going to extreme example time, right? This is, this is why yeah. we're having a, a podcast instead of, you know, tweets, right? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I still call it Twitter and tweets, even though I'm not it's supposed okay. to, but I, it's I just do as well because... old habits die hard. No, so. I don't respect the person who who owns it. I'm okay with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> there's that too. And you know, I'm I'm hoping any day now it would just go back to Twitter officially. Um, you know, the leadership wise and uh, uh and you know, name wise, but um let's just say that to use an extreme example, let's just say that I'm playing magic and I'm sitting across from somebody who is like against the idea of me existing, let's say that I, I identify as as trans or a certain uh, or it's just I'm Asian and this person is just like racist towards Asians. Let's just put it that way, just to use a personal example. Right. Or I, I know this person is it's not like the person saying it like I hate you, but this person I know from their body of work that they are. Right. So is that can that be allowed to happen? Is, is that like how do we get is there a way to get past that or should we just be siloed off from each other? I don't know if I'm already listing no, extreme I... solutions to the problem, but gotcha. Yeah. So um, let me just rephrase your question. So that way um, I, that way you can let me know if I'm, if I'm off about this interpretation. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is um, the question I'm hearing from you is, is it possible for some, for two people with strong, diametrically opposed opinions politically etc um to coexist in a space and have it still be called a safe space um and the example you i'm not sure if it's like, just politically yeah. it could also be just like you know um someone who is perceived to be racist i don't know if yes. that's is that a political thing or not i don't know it can be depending on how they're racist um Sure. I, I'm always of the opinion that everything is political, but I'm a political science major, so of course. Okay, I'm that's going that's to. fair. Yeah, that's uh, fair. But mm. I, basically, someone whose beliefs are strongly diametrically opposed to your own very strongly held beliefs, or even your identity, which I suppose, depending on who which philosopher you talk to, 
could be a belief, you know, cogito. Yeah, that's assume. okay. That's a good way to reframe the question. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. I think that there are, are, I mean, if we're speaking theoretically, um, that would very much depend on the social contract that you and this person would have to agree to. Um, and of course, that would depend on a variety of factors. How long is this engagement for? Um, what is the purpose of this engagement? Um, you know, what, what circumstances are bringing us together? And, you know, what trust can we build with each other in order to help create at least a, a semblance of mutual respect? So that way, whatever goal that you're hoping to achieve together can be accomplished. So... Uh, it's a group project in a lot of ways, right? Um, so let's take your example. Someone who's really racist against Asian people. I've met people who are racist against Asian people and I've worked with them before and it wasn't pleasant. Mm -hmm. um, in these situations, I had to basically get an idea of the lay of the land with this individual. Am I working with them? Um, is this a professional setting? what am I going to need to do on my end to make sure that I communicate to this person that this is a professional situation? I expect to behave by these rules of engagement, which is to say a workplace scenario. And my hope is that you also do that. We don't talk about my race. We don't talk about anything like that. I'm not going to talk about your beliefs. We're just going to sit here and we're going to get this done. Um, and that's basically the situation at hand. You also have to have a conversation with yourself. Am I prepared to be in this situation? Um, has something happened to me in the past that ha makes me incapable of feeling safe around this person, regardless of what deal can you can strike, right? Um, if you've had a really big traumatic experience with another racist individual, that could definitely um, make you feel hesitant and could really cause emotional harm to yourself um, by to force yourself to put about that situation. So in like many things in life, like a good bra, like a good wine, <laughs> like many things is very much dependent upon the parties involved and you have to tailor it sort of upon based on those, um, those different factors. But the overarching, the overarching like philosophy is just checking with having two main conversations the first is with yourself are you okay being here what needs to happen for you to be okay to be here and then being able to have an honest conversation with this other person or being able to interact with this person in a way that makes sure that those needs are met without disrespecting that other person now if this other person is like I have to sit here and be actively racist towards you on every turn, every time I tap a land, then that's probably not tenable for you. But again, that's that whole check-in with yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like I said before, at the end of the day, you have to look out for yourself. Like your own mental health, your own emotional health is the number one priority. You can't help other people if that those parts of you are being harmed. So, mm. um, I guess the real answer is it depends. It depends on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is no one size fits all, but you know, no, there is, 
there's never been a one size fits all. Mm. Um, so we can't really treat it uh, life that way. Yeah. I guess a follow up to this question would be, let's just use a very specific example, right? Like you're maybe you're playing in a commander game or you're playing in a tournament where you are, your goals are not, not necessarily to interact with this individual, right? But it's part of the larger fabric or part of the larger space. What role or responsibility do you think the organizer or the groundskeeper, let's say the person who runs the store or the tournament, do they have any, should they have some responsibility or power to not allow people with these two different um, opinions politically to to sit down together, I guess, because there, there's definitely the conversation one has to have with oneself totally like that's part of like personal empowerment and responsibility and just making good choices for yourself. But there's also kind of the responsibility of the the body at large. Gotcha. So uh, let's assume that and I think this might be a safe assumption. Let's assume that a tournament that the goal of a tournament organizer is to create a successful tournament and that sounds what does that reasonable yeah uh we can start with that assumption what does that involve that involves um people playing with each other um in an organized and legal fashion um within certain parameters like time limits and the rules of the game and also rules of engagement with regards to how you interact with this other person um Upon now that is defining what those rules of engagement are, are, are basically where the crux of that are of that, where, where the whole like acts, it's the fulcrum in which the whole situation spins upon, right, is, is balancing upon. Um, so let's say, for example, we have someone who is on the alt right, um, or a red pillar, or for example, like these people do play magic, they they do show up at stores, they do show up at tournaments, um. If at any point, like, there is no reason based off of most of the tournament rules that I have seen for anyone to forbid, let's just say, a person who believes in these things, who doesn't have a track record of harassing anyone, etc., who's just coming in for whatever PTQ, RPTQ to play. Even if they're wearing, like, a Trump hat, etc., make America great again, there is no reason for them to be banned from that space. Um, if they do make other people feel uncomfortable um, by their actions, by their words, if they say something to someone like, go back to where you came from, or, um, you know, I've never, I, 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 you know, girls don't usually play magic or, oh, did your father, did your um, father teach you? Did your, did your boyfriend did teach your you? Your boyfriend teach you is the classic yeah. one. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. That behavior is where it crosses the line. Right. Um, because that is um, those words, those actions, they marginalize people like um, just picking up your cards without asking first. That's another thing. Um, there's a certain, I think, protocol that tournaments are run by that judges or rule advisors uh, try to enforce. I was a acting judge for my LGS for a while. Um, 
these are important things to, to have in mind in order to make sure that the tournament runs smoothly and it runs well and that people can play magic. It's not easy um, sitting across from someone who makes those kind of comments from you, uh, uh, to you. But at the same time, um, if they haven't made those comments and they're just wearing this hat, you know, they're allowed to wear what they, they, you know, as long as it's like family friendly or appropriate, essentially, like if someone walks in with porn on their shirt, which has happened, um, you can't be here, <laughs> but right. otherwise, yeah. Um, if they, and yeah, the, the goal of everyone that day should be to play a good tournament. And as long as they do so in a clean and uh, polite manner by the rules of the game within time constraints, there's no reason um, why they can't do that. So that's how I would see, that's how I would perceive a situation. That's how I know tournaments are run within Magic the Gathering um, and other games as well. So um, I feel like that's sort of the best, um, how do we call it? The best real world way of handling a situation like mm. that i'm so glad you you answered that and i i felt like i feel like i'm not testing you by the no, way no, no, it's I, fine. I just i really wanted to know how you th felt about it because kind of going back to what we said about social like it's impossible to know how someone really feels or responds to this because if i just look at your tweets like there's no way i would know and i'm glad we're having this conversation that's more than 280 characters or whatnot. And we could really get into that. that. That sounds like, I'm just saying in real time, like that sounds like a really reasonable way to do it, right? It sounds like a really reasonable way to just, just rules of engagement, as you said, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, rules of engagement. Um, obviously I'm not perfect. If someone out there listens to this is like, actually you didn't consider these things. Like I'm not going to sit here and be like, no, <laughs> everything I say is gospel. Obviously there's going to be ways I can't think of to improve these situations. Um, but you know, that's, that's life. You live, you learn, you laugh. Uh, I don't know. You drink Laughter is latte. important. Yeah. <laughs> Not to get too basic on you live long. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's great. It's great. Uh, the basic things are the things that we need to master and the, the things that are really important. And we just need to, uh, yeah, we just need, we really need to explore that for sure. Uh, all right. Let me segue to one last thing that I thought I was going to ask you earlier, but the conversation <laughs> went into an interesting direction. So let's, let's, let's go into. Michelle, you are a Vorthos. You are a hardcore, if, if people don't know this already, you know, now that you're an hour into this podcast and yeah. we've heard about some of the things that you're surprise. into. Big, big surprise review at the end, right? Big surprise twist. Um, you self-identify as a capital V Vorthos. You're into the lore. Um, explain to me someone who's kind of a, a dummy, who's more on the spike you're spectrum. Like what, what is what is lore and magic like why should someone like me care about lore uh i guess i'm not really you don't really need to pitch me on it but just just <laughs> what is lore and for someone like me who's not following up following all the stuff with regards to magic how does one even start to understand this space kind of like lore or flavor 101 for dummies mm. so i guess i'll start I think the easiest way for me to address this is to uh, begin with m why I relate to lore so much. Um, I love stories. I love history. I love reading. I love um, 
I love video games. I love, um, I, like, one of my favorite things when I was a kid was to read Shakespeare and Chaucer because I'm a real big nerd and Beowulf and stuff. Because these are big epics, like the Trojan War or the, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms or, um, you know, the story of, like, Wu Zetan and, and, like, just all of these amazing, um, amazing tales about, like, gods and, and heroes and people who did extraordinary things dragons fantastical um beings of myth and legend it, it was it, it like it definitely being um in a not great family situation it was a wonderful escape and in many ways these stories even though they're completely fake like these people don't exist unfortunately as much as i want like um, I don't know. Uh, basically, like the entire cast of like Much Ado About Nothing. I would love like Beatrice and Benedict to exist in real life. They would be a hoot, but they don't. Um, but there is truth that the in these words, right? Uh, I often refer to The Great Gatsby as one of my favorite books because it is um, it, it reveals a very bitter and real truth about what it is to live in a late stage capitalist society. Um, and what's great about Magic the Gathering and video games and things like that where you can engage with this material on your own is that you suddenly have autonomy for expression. And that is so fun. You can actually become a part of this world. What is so great about Magic the Gathering, and I think the main reason why I'm so uh, enraptured by the lore, is honestly down to the color pie. Um, it it kind of encapsulates a lot of my interest too as a person who loves political philosophy uh, that of course um we would have it makes sense for me to like have a game where there's five competing philosophies in life there's competing philosophies within most branches of humanities and social sciences within economics within um statecraft within um even like agricultural ethics and things like that it is there's a lot of people with their own ideas. So being able to take those ideas and manifest them within a game design is genius. Like, I think it's genius. Richard Garfield did amazing. And it's the exploration of those themes uh, in different ways that has made me so enthusiastic about this game. Um, of course, we can talk about, you know, green, big, stompy trample, but at the same time, it's like green is also the, the color of order and cultivation and the natural cycle of things. Um, it's about life and death because that is what nature is about. I've seen enough David Attenborough documentaries to understand this. <laughs> um, and, you know, white is about civilization and like making things and people and codes of ethics. Uh these and then it's like of course these two seem compatible in so many ways but there's also ways that they like really butt up against each other too so understanding that and seeing that play out on the board is so cool it's just so cool it's like seeing someone take like I don't know, uh, John Locke's like social contract and then takes on Karl Marx's like, I don't know, Calories Manifesto, turns it into like game and then you're playing it, right? Like that's that's so cool to me. Um, what I love about lore is that you suddenly get this third aspect where you take the philosophies of these people, of these games, of this game, and then you instill it within 
characters. And then now these characters are acting in ways that are consistent with their philosophical understanding of the world, if that makes sense, right? So for example, Jace. Jace is curious. He's all about wanting to solve problems. He wants to, um, he's not necessarily trying to be the best, although he does have a lot of insecurities. He just has an insatiable desire to learn. And that is blue, very much so. It, it's a, an aspect of blue um, that we have that spell curiosity. We have curious otter, tons of those mm-hmm. things where you, you make, you hit, you draw a card symbolizing like, oh, you, you found something, you know, you're gaining more knowledge from it. Um, that is so fascinating. And then seeing these characters interact with each other in the world and they've got cool costumes and they, they've got really neat powers. That is so much fun. Um, it, it's seeing, gosh, like your favorite comic book character has come in and do some cool stuff. So that's why I like lore. I like lore because it is a really fun way to play with the deep philosophies that inspire the entire game. And if we're looking at any story that humanity has created, I feel like that's just a very natural way of, I guess, of distilling the essence of myth and of story. Uh, When we create a character in a book or um, wherever in a video game, we create this person who lives by a certain set of rules. And so having that applied to Magic the Gathering just makes so much sense. And then you see do cool things like fall in love and get married and have kids. And you're just like, ah. (laughs) Or you you see them make bad decisions. You're like, no. Right, right. My question to you, though, is it's interesting, especially someone with your background who has absorbed. And by the way, I also study a little bit of um, uh, literature, not not as comprehensive as you have, I'm sure. But but just just in terms of like being exposed to such masterworks like Shakespeare and things like that, doesn't that make it challenging to actually absorb magic lore in a sense? Because like if you look at the execution of it and I'm not saying that. Some, I think one does need to divorce execution from the premise or the ideas, but like sometimes you look at the execution and it's just not amazing. So that to me, that all like the cynical part of me also is like has kind of rejected magic lore in the past because of certain things, experiences like that, where it's like, okay, well, I can read The Great Gatsby or I can try to read some novella about uh two magic planeswalkers and they are not the same like how does one reconcile that because to me that's what that's kind of like my hang up you know when i try to get into it yeah i mean it's the same way that i can enjoy a 200 dollar bottle of wine but also enjoy a capri sun um, <laughs> yes, yes. Does that make sense? Perfect like, analogy. Yes, it does. It's, it does. It's deli- both are delicious in their own way. Right, both right. are fun in their own way. Yeah. Like I can't stab. There's Shakespeare. A there's like Pulp Fiction, not the movie, but like just, 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 yeah, just Harlequin novels. There's, there's different things. Yeah, right? there's Schindler's List, and then there's you know Birdemic. Like it, both are beautiful expressions in of themselves. And I think not to say that magic lore is bad. Um, magic lore quality, unfortunately, has been very turbulent over the past few years, to put it mildly. Um, but what is good is good. Like there, I think everyone looks at Ixalan as being OG Ixalan as being sort of the zenith of of magic lore in a lot of ways. And there have been amazing stories since that have um, 
really captured the ethos of magic philosophy in that same way, the color poly philosophy in the same way, created like this sense of world building where you want to get in there and engage. There's a reason why, like, for example, Ravnica is my favorite plane, because there's just so many possibilities. It's such a very well-realized world and plane. Like you can, you see the way that society is structured and you know that if you were to land on it, where you would need to go and how you would interact with everybody, right? Um, so there's that aspect too. And I think that's just the, that's, what's really cool, right? It's like having the same five scales in music and then seeing new compositions come up every single time, right? Mm. That's what's so yep. fun. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's bad and you're like, that does not <laughs> sound good. <laughs> like right. for like right. pop chords, right? Four pop chords. It's like, mm -hmm. everyone talks about the, you know, these are the four mm -hmm. chords that everyone knows within pop music. Sometimes you end up with really good stuff. And then sometimes mm -hmm. you're like, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what were why? you taking? <laughs> right. And that's kind of how I see it, right? It's all about um, what new mix is coming out. You know, how are we reinterpreting red blue? Um, what aspect of like green red is this part of the plane going to like embody? Because like red green on um, Innistrad isn't the same as red green on Ravnica, right? Mm -hmm they they manifest in very different ways but also in similar ways and that's what's i think really really cool and you, that's what i love to see in in the story you see these kind of broad strokes and what story does is that it takes that um those broader ideas and it puts you right in the middle of that action so that way you have um intimate knowledge of how everything is gonna everything is manifesting so that's basically where i'm at and and i think this like to tie this into universes beyond um I'm, I'm not mad about universes beyond quite honestly i don't think it's the death of lore i think at the end of the day you know uh, stranger things etc these are these are fads like the princess bride is a classic but we're not making a game about princess bride um lore is something that's in-house that can be controlled that can be um messed with and contained I think that well, Universes Beyond is wonderful in terms of looking at the color pie, stretching it, designing it, and seeing how you could um, play with like, gosh, I think uh, I made like a whole Hot Fuzz dual deck at some point, and it was a lot of fun um, trying to figure out that situation. But yeah, playing with like Jurassic Park, how does that work within magic? Like this, that's clever and very fun. So as long as we, I think we take it within, um, with the attitude of like, this is just expression. It's almost like art. It's very lighthearted, you know, I think, um, the, the less upset people will be hopefully about the situation, <laughs> about the way that Watsi is proceeding from here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I yeah. feel like the music analogy is really, uh, is really apt. I really really i think i think that's a good way to look at it that's a good lens to to look yeah. at it or like and... five instruments you know you've got bass you got keyboard you got electric guitar drums and a singer and they do very different things every song every album mm -hmm. um so that can also be a lot of fun um if you think about it that way too yeah michelle thank you so much for taking the time today to yeah. to have this conversation i i 
I, I enjoyed it a great deal. And the last thing I want to ask is like, where can people find your work on the internet? Like what's the best place for people to, to find you in your, your body of work? Gotcha. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> so if you're interested in catching up with me at this moment in time, uh, in terms of the most contemporary news, I would check out the site formerly known as Twitter. Um, my handle is kilnfiendpotter. Um, you can also find me on mastodonkind.social, which is, I believe, where a lot of loading ready run folks are. It's great. Um, you can find me on the same handle there. Uh, if you're interested in my artistic work, uh, I do a lot of ceramics, 2D, like regular 2D art with watercolor and gouache. You can check me out on Instagram at Kiln Pottery. And if you're like, I want to read um, an entire PhD thesis about the positive masculinity of Jay Spellerin and all that nonsense, you can check out my old articles on Card Kingdom. <laughs> um, back when they used to let me just ramble on about like, how much I love Liliana Vess. <laughs> no, no, no editorial, no editor needed. All no, good? no, no. My editor was very kind. Let's just say my editor was extremely kind. <laughs> mm, okay. There is one, I lied. There is one last question I wanted yeah. to ask. All right. Why Kiln Fiend? Why Kiln Fiend Potter? Why Kiln Fiend? Okay. So back I, uh, so I was part of, I've been part of the creator, I've uh, been part of like the startup slash like content creator game for long enough to be like okay if i want to like create a new business which i did um and i want to incorporate two of my um two of my interests which i did i need to come up with a good name that clearly conveys both so uh, but it, it's gotta be like if good and like in distinctive enough that if you play magic you're like oh yeah kill fiend i got it that's a proper staple etc etc and well, not you, overtly magic kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, but at the same time, like, if you're not in the magic world, you're like, oh, kiln fiend, like, pottery, kiln, and you're a fiend for it. Oh, that's cute. Um, so at the time, like, this is like a couple of years ago, 2017, there weren't a lot of, like, ceramics-minded <laughs> cards and magic back then. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, this seems fun. Sure, why not? And I've I've had it stick ever since and um, create like a whole brand around it and did some graphic design and so on and so forth. If I had to do it over, I might choose something else because it's always been a really odd mouthful, particularly in English. Um, Kiln Fiend is just a... It's easier when you're a magic player and you've actually said the card name yeah, a few times, but exactly. I'm sure it could be challenging sometimes. Yeah, so I, I do wish that I had chosen something a little bit easier to say and a little bit more catchy, but it is what it is, and it I, works don't, well. I don't hate it. It works for me. I like it. Um, I create like a little devil in my, um, my, on my site, kilnfiendfoddery.com. That's the mm -hmm. fiend. Mm -hmm. So you can, um, I used to have stickers of it. I should probably order some more of those. They're very cute. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's why I killed Fiend. I was like, I need something to do with ceramics. And there ain't a lot of it in magic. There aren't many gadget cards. I wasn't sure if also because you yeah. identify with a card or you identify as a red mage. I wasn't, that wasn't I, clear. I mean, red is appropriate because, um, ceramics is a craft. It, it's very like red, blue uh as a craft because it is very um it can be very artistic but it also meant a lot of my work is functional so it also serves a purpose um mm -hmm. but yeah red is the color of love and creativity and passion and i feel like that is very appropriate for an artist
Mm. All right. Well, that's something I always wanted to know. Thank you yeah. so much, Michelle, for, for taking the time. It was a blast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really wonderful. You asked a lot of questions I don't really get from other people. So this was fun. That's uh, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Humans of Magic. You've made it to the end. Thanks so much. You're awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there are two ways to do so. The first way is the most powerful. Tell a friend. Tell them to check out Humans of Magic. I'd love it if you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you next time.